Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see everyone here this morning. I think we've got a, a holiday weekend. I think a lot of people are out. Uh, I think some of them it's a little bit precautionary to make sure that we don't spread any kind of illnesses or anything like that that seems like they just run rampant through us. And uh, hoping that we're beginning to see the end of, of all of that, but uh, not quite sure yet. So we have to wait day by day and... Uh, take faith in the Lord <clears throat> that He's going to see us through because He's seen us through so far and we know and we can say with great faith that He'll continue to see us through in all that we do. Before we begin, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for this opportunity we have now to hear Your Word. Thank You for men like Solomon who stood for You. Thank You for the wisdom that you gave him to be able to impart to others. And Lord, we just ask today if you would help us to do our part in sharing that wisdom. Uh, because this is age-old wisdom. It doesn't, uh, didn't begin and end so many thousands of years ago. It, it begins and ends every single day of our lives. So would you bless us this day as we hear your word. Uh, again, we ask you, Father, just keep me out of this and let your word come through, come shining through. And uh, bless us with a greater understanding of this Proverbs 6 today. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Our scripture reading is fairly short this morning. We're going to be looking at Hebrew, our Hebrews. Proverbs chapter 6, uh, verses 16 through 19. Listen closely to these words that Solomon has written that God has given him to write. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen, congregation. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It is on though, Brett, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Don't want to pull a bonehead and turn it off, which if anybody can do it, I can do it. Today's scripture from Proverbs, yeah, has to be one of the more direct passages that I think we're going to find anywhere in the Bible. I know I say that quite often, but there's so many direct statements made to a, to a group to an individual, but more specifically, as we look at the Scriptures, these things are directed toward us. We've got the Ten Commandments, and that, that gives us a variety of topics that, that cover our relationship with God and our relationships with others. There are the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots we all know so very well. And I will add on to that. Those are not suggestions. Those are commandments that we have. On top of that is an interpretation that maybe several of them can take on. Things that we might add into it just to kind of add a little flavor to it, if you will. And then we try to add our own little twist to them so that they don't have quite as much of an effect on us and our way of doing things as it might someone else. We're able to soothe our consciences by 
turning the tables a little bit on those commandments and perhaps making them a little bit more in the way of suggestions than we should. On the one hand, we see in several places in the New Testament, especially in the uh, writings of the Apostle Paul, stating things that are of the works of the flesh, as we see in the book of Galatians chapter 5. On the other hand, there are things that we should do or produce as we grow in God's Spirit. We know that is spiritual fruit. We, we also know these things that will help us keep in step with the Spirit. And we see these things, a lot of them, in Galatians 5 as well. You can, you can get them all just both, both ways in that particular chapter. But in our reading today, we see specifically what God hates. That, folks, is pretty definite. Now, on the one hand, some of these six or seven, as we see, um, that are included, are are also included in the Ten Commandments. I say that because we see it was six God hated, but seven were an abomination. So we have to kind of choose that. The word abomination, though, is one that is used as well, as I said. The definition of abomination is something that causes one to hate or to be disgusted. We see this term used in several places in the New Testament. Mark and Matthew and Mark, uh, more specifically, about the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. These refer to the book of Daniel and its prophecies. And in essence, it's talking about false gods being worshipped in place of the true worship of our God. These are things that God hates. That's a serious list. Honestly, there could be seven sermons here, uh, one for each one of these seven things that God hates, but we're going to try to lump them together as much as we possibly can this morning. You know, we preach over and over again that we have a loving God, yet we're told that our God is also a jealous God. We have stories, parables that tell us about God's long-lasting, enduring love for us. We have the examples of the Israelites and how they would turn to false idols to to worship time and time again. This wasn't a a one-time, oops, we made a mistake, we're sorry, we'll never do that one again type of thing, though. These things occurred many times over a number of centuries, and yet what do we see every single time? They would seek repentance and God would take them back. Look at the overarching theme of the Bible. God simply wants us to be His people and He will be our God. It's a simple game plan from Genesis to Revelation. And yet all along the way we see that God hates certain things, certain of our actions. God hates divorce. He hates killing children. He hates pride and arrogance. He hates perverse speech and more. Look throughout the Old Testament and you're going to see that when God gave the people certain commandments and they didn't follow Him, look at what would happen. He hates disobedience. Underscore that. Back in the first centuries, many people subscribed to the thought that there were two gods, actually. That there was one of the Old Testament, the one of, of fierce righteous, or fierce wrath and, and, and justice. And then there was the God of love, as we see in the New Testament. 
But I can tell you this. There is only one God. But how could the God we know be one of love and hate? How could they be so diametrically opposed almost at times? How does that work? It's easy. Very, very simple. Three words. God hates evil. And those who subscribe to it. Proverbs 3.32. For the devious man is an abomination to the Lord. So what we're seeing here in chapter 6 is not really news to us, or at least it shouldn't be news to us anyway. Psalm 5.5. The boastful shall not stand before God, for he hates all evildoers. Are you seeing the pattern here? God is not in the business of, of tolerating evil. If you look at it, neither did Jesus when he was here upon this earth. Certainly he had friends who were Pharisees. And yet, Matthew 23, 27, Jesus takes a shot at many of those Pharisees when he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. Well, now we're hearing these words come from Jesus. Where does that leave you and me? I mean, oftentimes aren't we hypocritical about things concerning things in our lives? Aren't we sometimes prideful and arrogant, especially when we have knowledge of certain subjects, when we can sometimes like to maybe lord it over others because of how much we know and how little they don't? And we see other things that can just totally ruin any possible relationship that we might have with God, especially if He hates us, right? On top of that, how about the unknown mountain of sin that we have in our lives called the sins of omission? I have a fairly decent handle on sins of commission, but I don't even really quite totally know what the terms of sins of omission even means. But what is that proverb? It's not in the classical Solomon written sense, but in words that we can understand. Help me with this one. God hates the sin, but what? Loves the sinner. Exactly right. And yet, we just said that God hates certain people. Guess we should pack it up, go home, Cower in the corner until we hear the door open and know that God is coming for us. Well, let's go back to these words we saw in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. He hates evil doers. The devious man is an abomination to God. But why? Why does God hate those uh, folks? Again, because they do things that God finds evil. Furthermore, he knows men's hearts. He knows that they, that they do not intend to turn from those evil deeds. And there is a very key point right there. There'll be no confession of sin. There'll be no repentance from them. Nothing like that. So what are some of the deeds? Let's look at those for a second. Well, we see them in our reading this morning, don't we? First one is haughty eyes. What does haughty eyes mean? 
covers a bunch of different things, though, if you look at it closely. Merriam-Webster Dictionary calls it being blatantly and disdainfully proud. Could include being considered arrogant, even condescending at times. Pride can play a big role in having haughty eyes. But to be proud of someone or something is, is one thing, right? I mean, we can all be proud of things that we, we have or do or are proud of our family, things like this, right? To be proud of an accomplishment is one thing, all right? But do you worship that thing? Or is that accomplishment a reason or, or motivation to put others down because they didn't accomplish what you did? If you do, that's wrong. That, this is the question, though. How do we approach that sort of thing? A lying tongue makes the top six or seven in, in God's eyes. They use their tongues to deceive others. The book of James 3, verses 5 and 6 says that the tongue is a small member, meaning of the body, yet it, it boasts of great things. How great is a fire set ablaze by such a small fire, he asks. And the, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Look at verse 7 and on. Not a pretty picture painted concerning the tongue and its potential here. Hands that shed innocent blood. I think we can all recall senseless criminal actions that have taken place even in our lifetimes. For some of us from World War II and Auschwitz and other prison camps up to and including in our recent past, 9-11 to the Boston Marathon bombings to the thousands upon thousands of abortions that take place year in and year out. Life means nothing to people who instigate such actions who go and who go along with those actions. How about the next one? The heart that devises wicked plans. We talked about Adolf Hitler and his henchmen just a second ago with Auschwitz and all. Their plans to do away with the Jewish nation. Think about that now. Not a neighborhood, not a community, but an entire nation of people. They wanted to do away with all the Jews. They felt that they were an inferior people to them. Can you imagine that kind of thinking and then putting a plan into effect and try to eradicate all of those people? It's beyond my comprehension. An entire nation of God's people. One man, one group of people wanted to do away with entirely off the face of the earth. Go back even farther. Let's go to Genesis 6, 5. Back in the time of Noah. In the, in the sequence that we have biblically not too long after the creation of the world. Look at what it says. The Lord saw his, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every, get this now, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Are you hearing that? Every intention, always, only, evil, continually. They stayed up at night trying to figure out their next evil plan. Here we can see this evil plan thing has been going on for a long, long time, though. This is not something that's recent. It's been going on since almost the beginning of time. 
So we can't really take credit for the evil thing all at this time of our, our lives. But let's go back a few centuries and look at some of the things such as the Holy Wars. Within those wars was the Counter-Reformation. While some of these battles and all were considered perhaps noble efforts, many men died horrible deaths at the hands of, of men who were supposed to be the leaders of an entire religious movement. Why? Because these men refused to do or to go back to traditional Roman Catholic Church thinking. They were executed at the hands of men who burned them at the stake and who found rather, if you want to look at it in a somewhat disgusting sense, rather creative ways to take people's life with as much pain as they could possibly manage to create. Go back to the days of the Tudor, Tudor dynasty and see how men's lives were taken because they refused to acknowledge a new queen's religious beliefs. And this is just such a small taste of what evil man can do in the name of the Lord. That's what made it okay for them because that's how they were doing it, in the name of the Lord. Look at so many terrorist attacks that have taken place all over the world. That They were, they were well devised, for the most part at least, uh, plans to do with way as with, away with as many lives as they could possibly take. Most of these attacks, if it was taken on more than, than one or more than two people, one or more people, they, uh, they were carefully thought out, even to the point of taking their own lives if they needed to be, and they thought that was a great thing. They'd go see Allah if, if, they, if they lost their lives all at the same time. I have a joke I could tell you, but I'm not going to do it right here. Uh, ask me about it after church. It's kind of funny. Um, but not exactly. Churchly, okay? Anyway, I, I refer back to Genesis 6, verse 5. Every intention of the heart, only evil continually. Now, the next one, feet that make haste to run to evil. Not that far different than what we just discussed. But there's more to it than that. These people are quick to jump into anything wrong that they can get into. They'll lie about others. They'll instigate evil actions against others. But innocently, they'll have to take blame for what has take, uh, taken place. They will not take blame. They'll gossip about others. They'll attempt to have at, at every corner to put others down or attempt to shake the foundations, the integrity of others. They'll try to cause dissension among groups of people. Maybe even within a small group. Maybe even within a marriage. It's almost as if they're trying to create their own soap operas. Now for some of you all, you may not know what soap operas are. My suggestion, keep it that way. <laughs> they are not real life, folks. But we can certainly borrow traits from these things, can't we? Keep it, or just don't mess with them. But you see, these are some of the things that God hates. And no, I don't think God hates soap operas, okay? I just think he just kind of turns a blind eye and goes somewhere else or something. I don't know. He thinks these things are evil. They're an abomination to him. Do you get the point here? They are actions that God hates. Evil that God hates. 
But for those who are constantly doing these things, who refuse to confess their actions and repent from them, God hates them. So you can see here, there are certain activities and certain of mankind that do these things on a consistent basis. There are things here that are an abomination to God. All right? It's important that you understand what is being said here. Okay? Now, the question has to be asked, why does God hate these things? Well, we've said it over and over again. But look at Exodus 20, verse 5. Go back to this fact just a second. We've mentioned it already, but this bears repeating. Our God is a jealous God. But the question has to be asked, jealous of what? The classic, I suppose, is the man or woman who comes out and declares hatred for their God. And there are people like that. They'll do everything in their power to get others to believe that there is no God. Pretty obvious stuff here, I think. But how about the one who puts the world first? Who doesn't look at God at all? They are in essence saying to the world, they hate God just through their actions, through their everyday lives. Remember, following Jesus is not a gray area thing here. It is black or white. There is nothing in the middle. When we put the created ahead of the creator, we got a problem. Second, if you look at the list again in our reading this morning, these seven things are done to others. It follows again the Ten Commandments that where the first four concern our relationship with God and then the last six concern our relationships with our fellow man. These in our reading today concern looking down at others, lying about others, killing others, plotting to hurt others in some form or fashion, not being able to wait to hurt other people, bearing false witness against others, stirring up trouble with others. Look at it from a human perspective. If these things are being done to someone that you love, how would you feel about it? If any of these things were being done against someone that you cared for, how would you feel? How would you feel about the person or persons doing these evil things to your loved ones? Well, you're not going to like it too much, are you? Hey, maybe a strong word for us as Christians because we're told to love. And I know we all attempt to love people even when we know that they're doing wrong against us. That's the hardest kind of love to have. But it is one that we've been told time again through the scriptures that we need to do. That we try to love others as we possibly can, even when they're doing harm against us. But a strong dislike for that person doing it or a surefire anger has got to be in there somewhere. You know, I mean, we're human and that's what's going to happen at times. God made the rules. He can call it the way he sees it. He hates that kind of evil action doing harm to one of his creation. That's the bottom line right there. However, isn't it for us anyway supposed to be about hating the sin? Remember that little parable we said earlier? If that's the case, maybe hate for the action done against your loved one isn't a strong enough term. Let me give you a for instance. A drunk driver injures or kills someone that you love. 
You're going to be angry at that person who did it, aren't you? But you're also going to hate drinking and driving as well. And you might from then on, as many others have done throughout the years, you will campaign and help raise money and awareness against that dreaded evil action. Why? Because someone you love was harmed, maybe even killed. Can you see from that perhaps why God hates sins and those who perpetually commit those sins without remorse? But I want us to look at it from another perspective here this morning. How many articles have you read? Maybe you've seen some of these signs or maybe you've heard about them, but signs such as God hates America. Well, God hates this group of people or or whatever it may be that certain factions uh, that we've talked about previously are are, are more than ready and willing to put out there. Or maybe it's folks who are, let's say, who are against abortions, okay? Well, so am I. But I'm not going to go protest and hold up a sign that says God hates Planned Parenthood and all of those who believe in it. Maybe some folks would. Maybe they have these angry looks on on their faces, but I have to wonder how they're feeling in their hearts. Ever thought about that when you see this on TV or whatever? Could they be joyous in their attempts to judge other people not like them to hell? Is that what they're feeling in their heart right then when they're holding up one of these God hates such and such whatever? Maybe they even think in their own heart of hearts. You know, I'm just trying to get them to see the error of their ways here. After all, they are the ones that are sinning, not me. Someone needs to point this out to them. I'm not the sinner here. I don't think like them. Therefore, I'm the good guy in this holding up my God hates this group sign. I refer you back to one one verse, one very simple one. Remember this from Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That does not say anything in there about all but those who carry hate signs. Or all who accept these who do this, that, or the other thing. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It means, in that one simple statement, that we have all done some pretty unsightly bordering on evil things in our lives. Look at the other part of our reading this morning, Galatians 5. 19 through 21, if you get an opportunity, read Galatians 5 entirely, okay? He's warning them here. Doesn't mean he's pointing an accusing finger at at any one of them, does it? And yet those things that were going on, these sins that that Paul was talking about here, were alive and kicking in that particular area at that time, or Paul would not have mentioned, needed to mention them, would he? But what's Paul doing here? He's warning Christians, his brothers and sisters in Christ. He is telling them in a direct way, God truly hates sin. And if by chance they were involved in that lifestyle, or they were interested in getting involved in that lifestyle, there was an impending danger. And what was the danger? Not inheriting the kingdom of God. 
Not inheriting that kingdom can only mean one thing. Hell awaits them. That does not mean, that does not mean that they were once saved and lost their salvation. Now that's another sermon for an entirely different day. In fact, we could do an entire series on that as well. But you see, God doesn't want any of this for any of us. We're reminded over and over that God loves us. He loves us enough to have sent His Son to save us. He doesn't want us to be under His wrath. He doesn't want to lose any of us to an eternal hell, that separation from Him. We are His creation. Psalm 95, 7 says that we are the people of His pasture. The sheep under his care. Hebrews 3, 6 says, we are the people of his house. Goes even further when he says that we are his house. We indeed, if we indeed hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. However, again, I'll refer you back to Exodus 20. Verses 5 and 6 this time. Not only says that if we hate God, God will punish us by visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. That's another one of those that you need to remember. What he says here is that if we do evil things, there will be a price to pay. I'll bring the house down on you and your family, he is saying here. But, and here's the clincher, if you decide that's not the life you want for you or your family to live, if you decide that the things that had been done in your life previously are not what you want to do any longer, if you decide to confess those sins, repent from them, and then... uh, Stay away from them. Go run away from them as far and fast as you can. And you want to live the kind of life that is in accordance with God's will for you. He will break the cycle of destruction that is in or has been being in your life. If, and this is for everyone, remember that. All of the sins that we see in our reading this morning. If you decide today... That living those ways, living those sins, are not the way that you want to live your life any longer. Then he'll find a way. And that way is Jesus. Through work of the Holy Spirit, God the Father can forgive you of your sins. And you can be an adopted child of God. But it's because of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross... That all our sins, all those things in your life that God has hated in your life, those things that we all commit before we become a child of God, they will be gone and they will be, maybe more importantly, forgotten. Ephesians 2, 3 even reiterates this when Paul wrote that we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and by nature, We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's part of the good news of the gospel. When we hear that, believe it or not. But when we read Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, it brings the gospel into fruition. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. If you want to be uplifted today, go home and really look at Ephesians chapter 2. It ain't going to get much better than that, folks. But the joy that we can gain from being a child of God came with a price, a heavy price. Please remember that. It came with great loss to God. It cost him much pain and suffering, all for each one of us. I want to close with a statement made by a theologian, John Stott. Some of you all may know him and his work. He once made this remark. I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs were crossed, his arms were folded, his eyes were closed. There was a ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. There was a remote look on his face, detached from the rest of the agonies of the world. But each time that I stood there and looked for a little while, I had to look away. And in imagination, I have turned to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure of one on a cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. This is God the Son, folks. This is the God that loves you and me. When we read John 3.16, it's almost a sterile statement that we read. You ever thought about it that way? A sterile statement. We need to go deeper than just John 3.16 and look at what God really did for us. Consider the pain and agony that was tied into that statement next time you read it. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world to know our hurts, our aggravations, our temptations, to feel firsthand all the abominations God, his and our Father hated, feeling the sting of pain from those his Father knew would never change. And so he hated them and their evil deeds. He suffered for us. So while he hated so much those who would commit those seven abominations we have in our reading from Proverbs this morning, remember this. He loved us all the more. To God alone be the glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this simple message once more. Understanding that it's about the affairs of the heart as much as it is anything of what God hates, the abominations that he sees. There's, there are sins that we commit one against another, but he is more than ready, willing, and able to forgive us of those sins and forget those if we simply turn to him. Confess those sins, repent, and come to him. Father, bless us to that end. Um, help us to understand more fully your love for us, to look maybe even beyond John 3.16 and to look 
at the willingness that you showed to send your son to save us all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.